when I hear a, a song like that as we sing, it doesn't, uh, <laughs> there's something of me that gets really excited about singing about God. Um, and then there's something that makes me really small. It makes me really humble. To sing of the great I am with great gusto just makes me think a little bit like I'm not that. I'm not that. And I'm so grateful to be in his presence. I'm so grateful to be here with his people and to be able to look into his word and to sing his praises. Have you ever got the sense that your life, that in your life, you've been prepared for something that you're doing today. Like the circumstances that have led up to it, maybe it's your, maybe it's your family, maybe it's who your parents were to you, maybe it's what your parents did, maybe it's a circumstance that you faced that became very defining of you as a person and it, and it made me, it, it cast you in a direction that uh, somewhat sealed the deal for you. And you look at your life now and you say, huh, <laughs> I've been prepared for this time. There's something of what I'm doing and there's something of the way I'm living today and the things that I'm engaged in and the things that even God entrusts to me, whether it be being a parent or a spouse or the job that you do, Maybe it's the ministry you're involved in or the neighbor you're a friend with that there's something unique about how you have been prepared to be the evangelist, the teacher, the caretaker for that person for, for that time, for such a time as this, right? I think it's true. I don't know that it's possible to draw parallel lines between every single event in our life to say that happened so that this would be true of me or that happened then or that person said that then so that I would know to say this here. I don't know that we can do that, but I do. I do believe as we look at scripture even that God is intentional. God is sovereign and he sees and he knows and he hears and, and he remembers and he acts all throughout history. And somehow you and I, we're sitting here today listening to the gospel or listening to God's word or singing his praises in some way because there are life events that have led up to this moment. I'd say in this text, in Exodus chapter 3, and even as we look throughout Exodus, you can't help, as, as Frank already mentioned in our call to worship, you can't help but see both the type of Exodus as a story being a picture of the gospel itself, and then the people within the story of Exodus even being types of the characters, namely Christ. Moses, how can you not see that Moses, to the people of Israel, was a type, a picture of a savior that was coming for a much greater salvation than the exodus from the tyranny of Pharaoh. I'd say Moses. Moses was God's man, and Moses was a man that was being shaped for Exodus. He is, in fact, an Exodus-shaped person. God is providentially developing a man for Exodus. Up to this point, Moses has already experienced two Exodus. Let me highlight for you. Moses' first Exodus was through the waters of the Nile. Moses is drawn out from the deadly waters of the Nile, and though we might picture him in a basket in a calm, rippling brook, it is death that was his destiny. He was to be thrown into the, to the Nile, and he was to be killed, and it was at Pharaoh's hand, at Pharaoh's command. And he is rescued from the deadly waters of the Nile in an ark-like basket. 
Noah's Ark preserved his family from destruction and the family line of Messiah and of the Messiah. And Moses' Ark preserved the earthly deliverer of the people of Israel and also the messianic line of the heavenly Savior of a spiritual Israel. And this all pointing to a greater Ark of God. The Ark of the Cross of Christ where the people of God are preserved from judgment for sin and and find forgiveness, cleansing, and adoption as sons of God. Isn't it beautiful? There's a first exodus in Moses' life. There's also a second exodus that Moses experienced. It's the exodus we see now, his exodus to Midian. Moses' life is spared as he flees Pharaoh again. He flees Egypt to run to Midian. This exodus exodus is often talked about as a mistake, but we need to reconsider what God's sovereign hand is at work here. It actually foreshadows a third exodus, and if you will, the greatest exodus of all. You see, just as Moses, he seemingly wakes up one day and he sees the oppression of his people so too God hears and God sees and God knows the oppression of his people. Just as Moses is stirred to action, God also is stirred to action. Just as Moses kills the Egyptian oppressor, God will kill the Egyptian oppressors. Just as Moses flees Pharaoh to the east for 40 years in the wilderness, the Israelites will flee Pharaoh to the east and spend 40 years in the wilderness. Are you getting the picture of an exodus-shaped man? All of this foreshadowing a great shepherd of the sheep who rescues his people from the tyranny of sin and draws them to himself as a bride to a bridegroom. <clears throat> Yahweh God is so intentional, not just with Moses. Please take this off the page and insert it into your heart. Yahweh God is so intentional. In chapter 3 here, Yahweh God, he reveals himself to Moses in a way that hasn't been done since Adam and Eve. Right there in the presence of God is he revealed to Moses, and Moses responds, who who wouldn't? We all are going to react and respond if we're in the presence of Almighty God. It exposes three things. It exposes Moses' insecurities. He doesn't leave him there in his insecurity. He gives him boundaries. He gives him direction. He tells him, this is what I want you to do, Moses. And then he encourages Moses with what's going to happen. Here's the end game, Moses. This isn't all there is. I want you to know who you are. I want you to know who I am. I want you to have direction in your life in this very critical moment in the story of redemption. And I also want you to be encouraged that this isn't all there is. This is chapter 3 of Exodus. Would you stand with me and read Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush. Moses, Moses, he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid and looked at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent to you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they listen to your, and they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders and I will do it, uh, that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor, and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Thank you, God, for your word. Have a seat. Our God and our Father, we ask for your grace this morning. We ask for your grace to be able to look into the scriptures. Seems like a lot of content, Father. And both be intentional to see the big picture and yet not miss some of the rich nuggets of gospel truth held within. God, would you help us to listen carefully, not only track with the words of the story of the Israelites and the Exodus, but God, would you be so gracious is to draw parallel lines that we might be able to see our own heart as we stand before you, even as those who might be standing before a burning bush, that we might be humbled. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. That is a a heavy task, is it not? To look at an entire chapter of Exodus and try to bring out those things that are rich nuggets and be able yet to see the big story. I would encourage you, from this time forward, if you haven't already, I would encourage you, week by week, as you know the book of Exodus is going to be taught, for the most part, we are going to go through a whole chapter each time we're together. Sometimes we'll pause a bit, like as we get to the, uh, the, the, um, the plagues, we're going to pause and slow down a little bit. But for the most part, if you want to track your Bible reading with the preaching of God's word, I would encourage you to read week by week another chapter of the book of Exodus. 
here in chapter 3, Yahweh God reveals himself to Moses. Yahweh God is a, is, is, is a word, a Hebrew word that is the personal name for God. It's represented by four letters, Y-H-W-H. Yahweh is a personal God. He doesn't hold back himself from his people. He reveals himself. He reveals his directives, and he also reveals his direction. It reads in your scriptures, L-O-R-D in capital letters, the Lord. This is your personal God. We see Moses in this story caring for sheep at Mount Horeb. If you remember, Mount Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai or the mountain of God. This is the first of seven times that Moses was going to ascend Mount Sinai. The next one we hear in the scripture in Exodus is going to be when Moses receives the law. This context, knowing that it's the first of seven times, we ought to get this picture or this sense that something new is starting. Something is just beginning. There's a story that's just beginning to ramp up. It says here in the scripture that when this fire is seen, this miraculous image takes place in front of Moses. It's the angel of the Lord that speaks to Moses. He appears in the, in the burning bush. It's something more than an angelic being. It's something, there's something more going on here than, than just God sending a messenger. That's what angel means. Uh, there's something more than just a messenger that God sends to speak on his behalf. What we know is when we get to verse 4, it is God himself that calls out of the bush. God calls Moses. It's, it's closer than an angel. It's the very presence of God. And in my opinion, as I study, more specifically, it is, a, it is the very revelation of pre-incarnate Christ. It is not just a representation or a representative. It is, it is pre-incarnate Christ himself standing there with Moses This isn't shocking, even in the New Testament, when you look at the book of Jude in chapter one. There's only one chapter, so you only find one chapter. In verse number five, it says this. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. It is Jesus that is there in the presence of of Moses. More honoring is Moses who's standing there in the presence of Jesus. What's the significance of this burning bush, this picture that Moses is in front of? Well, we know that fire in the scriptures oftentimes, if not always, represents holiness, the holiness of God. God is holy and God is separate. When we see fire, we know that we ought to keep ourselves distant from it. Fire consumes. Do not come near is the instruction that Yahweh gives to Moses. Don't come near me. Just like later on, we're going to see the people of Israel at at Mount Sinai again. And he's going to give the instructions to Moses to give to the people. He's going to say, here's the boundary. Don't come close because if you even touch the mountain where God's presence has has, has come down upon, you're going to die. Don't even let your animals touch the mountain. There's something of fire. There's something of the holiness of God that, that makes us separate from God. He is holy and I am not. He tells Moses to take off his sandals not sure if Moses thought of that himself, evidently not, but taking off your sandals is a picture of reverence, uh, a picture of honor. You're in a place that is, is, it has the presence of the Almighty God. You, you need to take off your shoes, Moses. I want you to even experience tangibly with your feet on the sand that this is not a place that you're normally going to be. 
something of that exists when we come together to worship. We don't take off our shoes when we worship God, but there is a moment. There is an awe of God that we experience as we sing to Almighty God, as we listen to a testimony of his work. There's something that we know of who we are and work that God alone can do. When I listen to somebody sing praises of God, I, I know that, that that praise that comes from that mouth, not only can I sing those kind of notes, but I can't, uh, I can't even wish that kind of praise to come my way. I am different than God. God is holy and worthy of praise. Take off your shoes, Moses. The odd thing about this bush is that it's not consumed. There's this fire that's, that's happening, but there's no crackling. There's no fuel needed for the fire. It's just existing. And he looks at it, and it's just a strange vision. Why a fire that doesn't consume? Riken says this, he says, like the burning bush, God never runs out of fuel. <laughs> his glory never dims. His beauty never fades. He always keeps burning bright. This is because God does not get his energy from anyone or anything outside of himself. He is completely self-existent and self-sufficient in his eternal being. He is the living fire. He doesn't need fuel. He is the fuel. He is the fire. He is the flame. He is the holy. He doesn't get his holiness from anywhere. Most appropriate representation or most appropriate response comes out of Moses. He's afraid. He hides his eyes. He, he turns away. I can't possibly look upon the holiness of God and live. Romans 3 and verse 10, there is none who's holy. No, not one. Moses instinctively knows I, I'm in the presence of holiness. I can't be consumed. I can't look. <laughs> presence of God produces a fear of unworthy approachability. There are boundaries that are set. We don't get to just waltz into the throne room of God. Or do we? Moses knew that there's something holy and set apart and awesome happening here. Moses responds appropriately and, and even so he is forever changed. You remember the story of Moses when we get to Exodus chapter 33. By the time we get there, Moses is still burning within his heart. God, show me your glory. I know I can't look upon you and live, but I so want the intimacy of, of my relationship with you. I so want to see you. Show me your glory. <laughs> and God says, you, you can't see my face, for man shall not see me and live. But God does show him himself, doesn't he? He puts him in the cleft of a rock, and he passes before him and he says, I'll let you see my backside just for a smidge. All of this foreshadowing, this spiritual reality that you and I, not hid in the cleft of a mountain, but hid in the rock of Jesus Christ himself. Amen. That we don't waltz lollygagging into the throne room of God like a careless child, but we do come boldly before God, hid in the blood of Christ, 
Him, him our Savior, Him our Redeemer, Him our Advocate. Yes, hmm. We're down around verse 7 now. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. That ought to ring a bit of a, a bell for you. Back at the end of chapter 2, there's this summary statement that comes from the, uh, the narrator of Exodus. And this is not only a restatement, but it is a restatement by God himself. Not because he listened to the narrator, but because the narrator listened to him. I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And listen, I have come down to deliver them. And the hand of the Egyptians, uh, at, at, uh, out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. See, along with God's re revelation of himself, he revisits what he does. Not only who he is, but what he does. His name is forever connected to his actions. His name is forever connected to his mission. This is no longer the narrator, as I have said, but it is God himself revealing himself to Moses. Moses needs to know what that Yahweh God sees and he hears and he remembers and he knows. He knows all of the affliction of my people. Listen to the personal nature of Yahweh God. He sees and he hears and he knows and he remembers because they are my people. I love that God. <laughs> I've come down to deliver. I've come down to deliver out of the hands of the Egyptians to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land flowing with milk and honey. Now what you need to see here is, is this is the very framework of the gospel itself. This is the picture of what our God does in saving people. Has he not come down and put on flesh? He left heaven. The condescension is the very thing that's being talked about here. He doesn't look at the people of Israel and says, when you guys get it together, I'll show up. Oh, that's not the picture of our Yahweh God. He comes down. Now, does it mean that he's on the 50th floor and he gets in an elevator and literally comes down to the first floor? No, but the picture here is condescension. He cares deeply for his people. And he's coming down to make provision for them that they couldn't possibly make for themselves. God comes down to save. He condescends. Jesus puts on human flesh that we might put on immortality. Jesus dies that we might have eternal life. This is the picture of the gospel. And you can find it all throughout the scriptures. It's not only in John 3.16. The gospel is part of the character of our God. And as you watch him deal with his people, at every turn, you can hear the gospel come out of him. I have come down to deliver. Look at the pronouns of verses seven through nine. It seems that it's all about God, and thankfully so. I have seen, I know, I have come down. Their cry has come to me. I have seen the affliction of my people. And all is well and good for Moses until verse 10. Come, I will send you. And Moses begins to tremble. 
stuff starts coming out of Moses that he didn't know was in there. Nobody around him knew was in there, but God knew it was in there. Come, I will send you. You have to take that off the page. When, have you ever had the experience when, when the missionary is standing here talking about the work that they do in another country and there's somewhere in there that the missionary who you deeply respect and are awe-inspired by the work that God does through them, they at some point make invitation. And they say, we sure could use some help. Would you be willing to come? All of a sudden, the nice missionary presentation changes. <laughs> We find reasons that our calendar won't work that out. We find ways that we can come up with money to give to that person that we weren't going to give to them before. When the pastor stands here and begins to talk about our responsibility as those who are sent to bring the gospel to our neighbors, that there's no possible way that I am going to come in contact with the same people that you come in contact with. And that God has sent you to bring the gospel where you live, work, and play. That's a nice truth as we sit here, is it not? Here's what we're going to do. Next week, we all get together and we're going to give testimony of where we shared the gospel this week. Who's in? Does it not change the game? We can talk about the, the wonder of the glory of God. We can sing praises to his name and delight in his goodness, even be in his presence. But when God says, I'm going to send you what comes out, what comes out of you? When you're facing conflict in your relationships and you come to me and you say, Pastor, there's, there's struggle in my life. And I turn to you and say, Brother, sister, I send you to go talk to that person. What happens? What comes out of you? What do you do? What do you not do? Moses is no different. Stuff comes out of him, and, and by God's grace, and one day we'll get to look Moses in the eye and say, Moses, thanks so much. We get to see what comes out. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and, and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God reveals himself, and then what instantly comes out of Moses is insecurities. Question number one that Moses asks God. There are five times when, when, God, when Moses is going to address God and find ways to circumvent the call of God upon his life. Two of them are found here in chapter three. The first question is, who am I? Who am I? Moses' first question to the guys, it's not about forgotten identity. He didn't forget who he is. It is, it is about an inadequate identity. I'm not enough. I'm not enough. All that you have highlighted here, I can't possibly. It comes from number one. He has just been before God and is still before God, humbled like this. <gasps> and God is giving a task that is a <gasps> sized task. Who am I to be this kind of person to others? Who am I? I'm not enough. It could be things like this rolling through his mind. I, I'm the Hebrew wannabe. I was passionate about defending my brothers, but do you remember how that went, God? I'm the one who killed a man. I'm actually a murderer. It's 40 years ago, but I know. Don't you know? I'm just a shepherd. 40 years in, and now I'm, I'm just a shepherd. How about this one? God... <laughs> I'm 80 years old. 
I'm 80 years old. At one point, he responds to God and he says, here I am, here I am. Moses, Moses, Moses says, here I am. It's the same exact phrase that's used of Samuel when God calls Samuel and Samuel says, here I am. This has been reduced in Moses so quickly to I am not enough. He does ask a really good question. Who am I? Am I enough? Am I enough, God? The honest answer is no, you're not. No, you're not. His feeling of inadequacy is real. He's not up for the task. He is a murderer. That is who he is. That's the kind of person he is. That's what he's done. But that's not the problem. The reality is none of us are enough. I'm not enough to stand before you and bring God's word. I'm not enough. The problem is not, am I enough? Because I'm not The problem is with our desire to disqualify ourselves from ministry when God has already qualified us. He's already called you. He's already called me. And what I do to God is I say I'm not enough. And then from there, that's true, it is. I'm not enough. From there, what do I do? Do I find ways to get out of it? Do I find ways to disqualify myself? Do I find ways to say, because I think I'm not enough, I don't have to do what God has called me to do? This is one of the great paradoxes of redemptive history. God can use miraculous means, as he often does in Exodus, but throughout the whole story of God, Yahweh uses people, sinful, broken mere men and women to accomplish his will. Pharaoh's daughter who disobeys her dad, midwives who lie, Moses a murderer, and you and me. God uses people and God is gonna use Moses. God's answer to Moses in classic form of of God or like Jesus having conversations in his day, it doesn't resolve Moses' self-assessment. He doesn't make it go away. God addresses his real need, though. In essence, God says, who you are isn't nearly as important as the fact that I will be with you. Moses, your inadequacy, your your, your, your inadequacies, that you, inadequacies that you feel that are real, they're not going to go away. But neither am I. Hallelujah. Neither am I. I'm in it for the long haul, Moses. I'm not going anywhere. I hear you. I see you. I know what's going on inside of you. I see what's spilling. But I'm not going anywhere. He did this with Joshua when the transition of power went from Moses to Joshua. What does he say? He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus, when he leaves this place, he says to his disciples, and lo, I will be with you always. This is the cry of our God. He doesn't look at us and and wait for us to become the the shaped person that he needs to get his work done. He says, listen, I know what you're like. I know what you're all about. And I'm going to be with you every step of the way. Hmm. Moses, verse 12. He gets this promise from God. No matter how big and no matter how scary Pharaoh seems to you, we're going to come back, Moses. We're going to come back to this very place and you're going to serve me on this mountain. I'm going to send you to go and I'm going to go with you and I'm going to make a promise to you. You're actually going to come back and you're going to serve me even more on this mountain. And what he's referring to is the giving of the Ten Commandments and the law. 
God's not done with Moses, and Moses needs to know he's not done. Moses has a second question for God. There are two critical questions that Moses has. One is, who am I? And the second one is, who are you? John Calvin says this. He says, nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. It is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinizing himself. How I know who I am is to know who God is. When I look at him, I see things about me that I've never seen before. Moses is in this situation. He stands before God and stuff is coming out of him and he he asks himself, who am I? And God tells him it's not as important as who I am. So, So Moses looks back at God and says, who are you? Who are you, verse 14? And God says in verse 15, I am who I am. This name seems to be a bit perplexing, doesn't it? I am who I am. All the deities of Egypt were were connected to finite realms. His name is actually brilliant in comparison to the, the, the gods of Egypt. The gods of Egypt were connected to the land and the water, but the land and water never came together. The land and the water, the sun, fertility, livestock, they all had very limited power. All limited. They all had quid pro quo kind of demands. If you do this for me, then I will do this for you. All completely impersonal, never speaking, never making promises. But I am, I am is more than a being or an existence. I am speaks and he acts. The great I am is a, it's a verb. It's the verb form in Hebrew. It's, it's to, to be, to exist, but it's also to act. He's both. He, he both exists all on his own and he acts out of his own resource. He is the great I am, not dependent on any quid pro quo. I am is more than just what we want him to be. He's unchangeable. He's self-existent. He is self-sufficient. He's dependent on nothing and no one else for his existence. And just the opposite is true, actually. Everything and everyone is dependent on him for their existence. And not only does I am set him apart, himself apart from all other gods, he sets himself apart from us. Now, I've said he's deeply personal and he's deeply engaged with our lives, but he also is completely set apart from us. Have you ever, you ever had a, a friend or maybe watched it at a store where a parent stops being a parent and they try to be a buddy to their kids? Maybe you've actually been prone to this. I don't like it when my kids don't like me. I like the fact that I have have children that I have a relationship with. There's no doubt about that whatsoever. But they are not my buddies. They are not my pals. They are my children. And the day that we become buddies to our children is the day that we strike confusion into our children's lives. Our children need parents. They need adults in their lives. You don't have to be a jerk to be an adult. You can be friendly and kind and gracious and communicate clearly with your kids, but you are an adult and you are a parent. Don't be their buddy. God is not our buddy. He's not my pal. Ladies, Jesus is not your boyfriend. He is holy other. 
He has set himself separate from us. He is holiness. He is holy and I am not. Today, just like the Egyptians, people want to make God in their own image. Why? We don't like the idea of a holy other self-existent God. Because that kind of God is the one that calls the shots. Just like a parent who is a parent and children who are children. There's a responsibility that we have to our children to love and guide and direct and teach. And there isn't a mingling of who God is and who I am. I don't get to, I don't get to say what God is to me. I get to read the scriptures and see who God is. And God says, I am who I am. I am is what made Jesus so offensive to the Pharisees. They wanted to and already had made God in their own image. The book of John is filled with I am statements. And it made him upset every time he came up with them. I am the living bread. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then do you remember in John 18, when they come to get Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, they say, are you, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Are you he? He says, I am. Do you remember what happened? At the sound of I am, they all were blown back off their feet. Supernaturally, the sound of the great I am speaks his own name, and they fall to the ground. The great I am. The great I am commands a sense of awe, a sense of honor, a sense of reverence, because he is wholly other. And he is Yahweh, who's deeply personally engaged with his people. Amen. Their great I am is not ambiguous, though. He doesn't hold himself so uh, aloof or he doesn't hold himself distant from his people that they don't know what he expects from them. Verse 14 says, and he, and he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moses is commissioned to communicate God's word to three different groups of people. He's to communicate to the people of Israel themselves. He's to gather the elders together and communicate who God is and what he wants to the elders of Israel. And then he's to get the elders of Israel together and they together are to go and confront Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh exactly what God commands of them. God isn't ambiguous. He doesn't leave Moses to figure out, what do I do next? You are you, I am me, now what? No, he says, go. Go and tell everybody involved exactly who I am. And this is how God's word gets conveyed. It's not only on Sunday morning. God has asked me to study God's word and communicate it to you. And you take God's word and you communicate it to your children, to your friends. And you gather them together and you talk about the gospel. This is how the word of God moves through God's people. Though this is not the end of the conversation between God and Moses, Yahweh God, in the midst of this conversation, gives an amazing encouragement to Moses. What we read in verses 19 and 20 is that Pharaoh is not going to let the people go without being compelled. And God promises that he actually is going to be the compelling arm that is going to, let, that is going to cause Pharaoh to let them go. And God gives Moses this beautiful picture of their future. Listen to this. He gives them this beautiful picture of their future to encourage him right in the midst of this turmoil, right in the midst of him feeling extremely inadequate in his calling. He says, he says, it's going to be as if you plundered Egypt. 
It's going to be as if we, we had a battle that took place. The word plunder is the, the riches that you get to take from a place when you win the war. It's going to be as if a war took place and, and they're going to give you all of the riches of Egypt as you leave. By supernatural means, God will give Israel favor. What's the word favor mean? It's the Hebrew word for grace. God is going to give grace to the people of Israel. And the way it's going to show itself up is that all the people of Egypt, as if they had been overcome by a mighty warrior, are going to give up all of their riches as they leave Egypt. And it's going to be as if you plundered all of Egypt. What an amazing picture is that. As they leave Egypt, the place of their oppression and bondage, the place of their grief, 400 years of grief, it will be as though they're leaving Egypt having won a war. A victory that they cannot win for themselves. A victory that, that was not even asked of them to fight. It is God who gives grace to the Israelites. It'll be a plunder of grace. A plunder of grace. Who of us, sitting here as children of God, who of us who, who knows of a mighty, mighty warrior who has fought our battle on our behalf, who of us has not walked away with a plunder of grace? How beautiful the picture. The foretelling of the grace of God in their lives is a shadow of God's victory that is ours in Christ Jesus. We too have been freed from captivity of sin and all the riches of heaven are ours in Christ Jesus. And one day we will leave this place, praise God. Listen, I want people to come to know Jesus. There's people that I really want to know Jesus, but I really want to go be with him. Can I say that out loud? I want to go be with him. And I want people to come to know Jesus. One day we'll leave this place and we will leave all our earthly possessions behind. And we will take only with us the wealth of eternal life, the plunder that is ours because of our victor. Only that which has been purchased for us, only that which is fit for glory, and enjoy peace and rest and joy forevermore in a promised land. This is a plunder of grace. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus.